The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There have been over 600 terrorism trials related to international jihadist uh, terrorism trial since 9-11. And many of them have presented factual evidence about plots and plans for terrorism, and many of them have not. And so I think it, and I've attended many of those trials and sort of watched these attempts to what it means to be associated with Al-Qaeda, how, what kind of evidence would make it look as if somebody actually was plotting a terrorist attack. And a lot of these, though some of these cases have been from start to finish produced evidence that's been very compelling. Others have been very much taken place within the context of 9-11 happened and we need to address this in a proactive, preventive way. So I, I just thought this was an interesting case because it, I wondered if you opened up other cases, what else you would find in the new context of 2020 and not 2005, 2008. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 16th, 2023. Earlier this month, a Pakistani man named Majid Khan started his new life in Belize after spending nearly half his previous life in U.S. detention, first at a CIA black site where he was subjected to torture and other mistreatment, and then at Guantanamo Bay. I sat down with Karen J. Greenberg, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law and the author of several books. To discuss one of Khan's fellow inmates, Saifullah Paracha, as well as Saifullah's son, Uzair. We discussed Karen's recent Lawfare article on the Parachas, the separate but intertwined systems of justice that the father and son navigated, and Guantanamo Bay's fraught past and uncertain future. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 16th. Karen J. Greenberg on the intertwined stories of Saifullah and Uzair Paracha. Karen, uh, you know, as many of our listeners probably know, you wrote a piece for us for Lawfare on the stories of Saifullah and Uzair Paracha, who are a father and son. So I want to start with them, actually. If you could just tell us a bit about who they are, you know, where their stories begin, and then where they begin to diverge. Sure. So Saifullah and Uzair Paracha, father and son, have a very interesting story, which is that one of them, the father, Saifullah Paracha, was held at Guantanamo Bay. The other one, Uzair Paracha, was in U.S. prisons and the criminal justice system. And they were there for parallel times, 17 years and 19 years, uh, respectively, and are now back in Pakistan. And the point of my piece was to talk about how intertwined their cases were in terms of evidence presented, allegations made, and eventually the fact that they both were sent home without being charged without charges that lasted. And so I just thought that was a very interesting story to, to write about. 
I think both stories really begin with understanding the father, Saifo Paracha, his role, who he'd been, um, and why authorities sort of had them on their radar after 9-11. And Saifola was actually I- interesting. He had come to the United States for school, uh, set up a business that was an export-import business, among other businesses, by the way, that went back and forth between Pakistan and the United States. This one was a textile business. He was a very successful businessman, but he also had aspirations to be somebody who contributed to the welfare of other individuals, particularly, uh, for example, he had worked to establish a number of initiatives in Afghanistan after the war with Russia and saw Afghanistan as, as a country that needed some strengthening on a number of fronts. And one of the things he wanted to do, for example, was to establish a, a school for the education of females, which is interesting in the context both of pre-9-11 and of what we are seeing now. And so he was somebody who wanted to find himself at, philanthropically as well as in terms of business prowess. And ironically, it's interesting that it was these charitable interests as well as business interests that brought him to the attention of the U.S. authorities. He had met, he says, for business reasons, not for political reasons, with Osama bin Laden. He had met with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He had met with a number of others who were considered later by authorities uh, to be high-ranking members of al-Qaeda or people involved in terrorist activities, such as Majid Khan, who was just released. And so because of his connections, because of the meetings that he has had, the authorities in the United States lured him to Thailand, uh, Bangkok, Thailand, where uh, they said they had, were going to have a meeting to talk about Kmart, one of the partners in his uh, textile export-import venture. And there they arrested him and took him into custody. At the same time, what's interesting is that they had already taken into custody his son. His son at the time, I believe 23 years old, was in the United States working to set up his own business that that was a business that addressed uh, both Pakistani interests and American interests. Um, it was a real estate business. And um, he was working here to do that. They arrested them both in part on some of the same charges. Interestingly enough, that's where their story begins to diverge. Because although the the allegations, some of the allegations against both of them overlapped, um, they were put through two very different systems, one the Guantanamo system, and one the federal court system in the United States. Uh, and ultimately, of course, they both end up in, back in Pakistan, neither one convicted on charges. So um, I thought it was interesting to look at their stories and how these two legal systems interacted with each other, even though uh, Guantanamo was set up to be so wholly separate and apart from the United States uh, federal courts. Yeah, thank you. And, and I think, you know, in, especially in your description of Saifullah, um, I think the listeners are really getting a sense of why a DC district court judge, Paul Friedman, called him, quote, no ordinary Pakistani. Uh, which is also the title of your piece. And so, you know, you, we're starting to get into, I think, one of the the biggest takeaways of of your piece that these two systems that I think most people see as completely separate and, and in fact, having been set up for that purpose, uh, sort of complicates that narrative. So I want to start to follow each of the father and, and son's threads. But first, I wanted to just, if you could, you know, many of our listeners will be familiar with the military commissions, but if you could quickly just give a sense of, of you know, 
how these two parallel systems of justice were set up, why they were set up, and and maybe you know how uh, a similar terrorist suspect would have been tried before 9-11. That is a really interesting story of, of how we got these military commissions that, that we still have to this day that have ultimately produced so very little in terms of trials that have been mounted. So Here's what happened. Prior to 9-11, when uh, a terrorism suspect was arrested and charged, they were brought into federal court. So, for example, this happened with a number of cases, including the um, First World Trade Center bombing case from 1993. Um, this was the, the way to do it. The court that did these cases, that was considered sort of the expert at these cases for the most part, was the Southern District of New York. Um, after 9-11, very early on, in the fall of 2001, the uh, Bush administration authorities decided that it would be a good idea to set up military commissions or some version of military commissions. And they, they issued an order in November of that year that basically was what authorized Guantanamo, but was, was also about military commissions, which did not exist, which were not set up right afterwards, but they were thinking about it early on, and, and this is how we know. So they brought ultimately uh, nearly 800 people to Guantanamo Bay. But in the early days of Guantanamo, there really was no established military commission system that had been set up by Congress. And eventually, even though there are individuals at Guantanamo who eventually have lawyers, who go through proceedings, etc., the Supreme Court eventually weighs in and say, no, no, Congress has to set up military commissions. And so in 2006, Congress passes the Military Commissions Act and military commissions to take on some kind of form that is recognizable. Of course, by this point in time, 2006, many of these people had been in custody for a long time, in addition to which you had the problem that a number of the individuals um, at Guantanamo who were to be put into the military commission system did not get there into 2006 because they had been held at CIA black sites at where they had been uh, subject to enhanced interrogation techniques, which was torture. And um, that, of course, became, at the same time they're setting up the military commissions, became an issue which meant and has meant until this day that because of compromised evidence, because of tortured evidence, because of the unreliability of confessions under torture, and many other things about the treatment of these detainees has impeded the military commissions process. However, in 2009, President Obama comes in, he delays the military commissions uh, for, for a, a pause for a moment, and asks his team to review many things about the tension at Guantanamo Bay, including the viability, whether or not th they wanted to recommend more military commissions. And in fact, they do. And in 2009, Congress passes a new Military Commissions Act that has in place certain procedural safeguards and some substantive safeguards against um, military commissions that will, in the new version, will, in the words of the chief prosecutor at the time, represent more like the federal court system than something totally <laughs> alien to it. The fact is that, you know, this is like a square peg in a round hole. The military commission system was set up apart from the federal court system because of the evidentiary issues, because of the hearsay issues, because of so much that was already compromised by how these people 
had been treated before they got into the military commission system. And then just to round the story out for you, what happens with the military commissions are basically two things that are related. And the first is that Eric Holder decides, you know what, we've always tried these cases in federal courts. There had been a lot of push by advocates to return these trials to the federal courts. And so Eric Holder takes one detainee from Guantanamo Bay, a man by the name of Ahmed Gailani, Tanzanian, and he takes him to federal court. He picks Gailani for a number of reasons. He's accused not of things associated with 9-11, but of the 1998 East Africa and the U.S. embassy bombings. Others have been convicted in this charge as well. And so it seems like a case that should very much belongs in the federal court system and had already been through the federal court system. Mr. Gailani is accused of 285 charges, including the, the deaths of those who had perished in the bombings in Kenya and Tanzania. And he is acquitted on 284 of them. And he, sent, he was sentenced to life in prison. But this was seen as a weakness of the federal courts to try terrorism detainees. And it was particularly important because one of the things that happened in the case was that the judge determined that evidence derived from torture, much of which was part of the original prosecution plan for for the case, could not be introduced into this trial. And so this combination of events led the authorities to think the federal courts could not try these cases. And then a year later, Congress passed as part of the National Defense Authorization Act that passes every year at the end of the year, said that no Guantanamo detainee could come to the United States again for any reason, whether it was trial, imprisonment, you know, health reasons, whatever it was. And so this combination of events meant that the military commissions were going to be held in Guantanamo going forward. And and that was a long time ago. That was 2011. And so we, we're, we're 12 years later, and we still see very far on the horizon any beginnings to these uh, trials. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Now, uh, to turn back to the story of the Parachas, you know, you you hinted earlier that they had a similar ending. They're both now in Pakistan. If we could go back to the beginning, uh, and can you clarify, you know, why the son started his journey through federal courts and why the father was sent to Guantanamo, and then what they experienced from there? Well, interestingly enough, let's just start with the fact that the father wasn't sent to Guantanamo right away. He was sent to Bagram Air Base, which 
some others who ended up at Guantanamo were, okay? So that in and of itself is not particularly surprising. However, considering that they were accusing him or alleging that he had met with top members of Al-Qaeda and that they began to tie this to efforts to help what they thought were efforts to help Majid Khan conduct some kind of terrorist attack in the the United States. I mean, the the allegations were were serious um, in their minds. They not sending him to Guantanamo was actually very interesting, and I think you know it would be worth doing a little more research to to understand this. Some of it may have been because he was a legal permanent resident, and and that might have been uh, the reason that they that they hesitated. Some of it may have been, I mean, the question is, you know, why wasn't he sent to a black site with others that they were accusing of such kind of heinous crimes? Or why wasn't he brought to federal prison? But anyway, he didn't go to Guantanamo until about 14 months, a little over a year um, after he was uh, apprehended by U.S. authorities, a time in which he has said is the worst time he spent in custody in terms of conditions of detention. Then he comes to to Guantanamo, and as happens with detainees at Guantanamo that are not charged, he's not charged. Originally, there were stories that they they were going to charge him, but those kind of disappeared, and, and they never charged him. But he was periodically went before the the various uh, bodies that were set up over the course of several presidencies to determine whether or not a detainee could be released or needed to be further detained at Guantanamo. And and so during those periodic review board and other sessions, you get a sense of what they're accusing him of, which is really the fact that he was by association of having met with these individuals, Al-Baluchi, Majid Khan, uh, KSM, that he was suspected of having a greater ties to terrorism and Al-Qaeda than he said he had. So that's one part of the story, right? The other part of the story is that they arrest his son and decide to put his son through the federal court system. And it's very odd because from the very beginning of what happens to his son, it's clear that they're more interested in the father than the son. The questions are about the father. So what it's very interesting what happens with the son. So they apprehend him in New York City. They go to his office. They take him into custody. And for three days, they interrogate him. He's strip searched, his phone is taken from him, and importantly, he is not given access to a lawyer. And he's questioned into the early hours of the morning, so 4 a.m. the first night, and then they continue to question him for days on end. They eventually read him his Miranda rights on the second day of questioning, but when Uzair asks for a lawyer, they tell him if one is provided, that Uzair will be arrested and taken to jail. And so Uzair withdraws his request and the interview goes on. And what do they want to know in the interview? This is kind of interesting. One of the things that had happened that united both father and son in terms of a narrative that the authorities were focusing on was a meeting that had taken place over uh, Majid Khan and Majid Khan's immigration status in the United States. And Baluchi and, and KSM, Al-Baluchi and KSM, both of whom are held in custody to be tried for the 9-11 trial, had wanted Saifula to help uh, Majid Khan and to help his immigration status because Khan needed to renew his U.S. travel documents and they had expired. And what they wanted to do was to prove that he was actually 
in the United States. And so that what they wanted was to get the son, Uzair, to come to the United States to begin to make his way through um, the authorities with the immigration services to figure out what actually Khan's status was, but also to pose as him in some regards. So to take his credit cards with him and et cetera, to be able to verify some kind of existence in the United States that was fraudulent. And so that's sort of where it began. The question from the authorities' point of view was, what was this all about? And their idea was that Khan wanted to set off some kind of explosives, underground explosives, and and that he was really a terrorist operative that Al-Qaeda was trying to plant uh, in the United States. And so that's sort of where what the authorities, when they questioned Uzair, were looking for verification of. When the interview was over, Uzair was formally charged with five terrorism-related charges. And those charges were about sort of what I've just uh, laid out about, you know, illegally gaining a foothold in the United States for the purpose of conducting a terrorist attack by conducting these underground storage tank bombings. And by the time Uzair was arrested, Khan and KSM, I believe, were in custody already at a black site and Albuchi would be captured um, in subsequent months. So these are kind of how the stories play out. What's interesting is that Uzair was offered a plea deal, which he uh, turned down. And not only did he turn down the plea deal, but he insisted at his jury trial in the SDNY, the, the venue that I mentioned is where the pre-9-11 terrorism cases had mostly taken place. He decided to take the stand for himself, which is something that defense attorneys strongly usually tell their clients not to do. So it very rarely happens and happens even more infrequently in a terrorism case. And um, the jury found him guilty and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. So that's sort of where his story went, as opposed to the father, whom they decided not to charge, and who kept challenging his attention, both before um, review boards, parole-style review boards, and through habeas uh, petitions that were turned down. So that's kind of where that happened. And then in in 2008, um, which is three years after the conviction of Uzair, evidence emerges that a number of the detainees, of the high-value detainees at Guantanamo, had in fact produced evidence that was relevant to Uzair's case. And the reason this is so interesting is that this begins a road in which justice is served because of evidence coming from Guantanamo to the federal courts. And I just, I think it's sort of a moment to note in the jurisprudence of um, war on terror proceedings, uh, judicial proceedings. And the new evidence is that these individuals at Guantanamo, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Al-Baluchi, Majid Khan, basically dispute the record about what was alleged and, and proven in court and accepted by the jury against Uzair, which was that he'd known he was working for Al-Qaeda and that he was part of this terrorist plot and that he was engaged in terrorist activities. And basically, these individuals at Guantanamo that I've just mentioned say, no, no, this is not the case um, with Uzair. He wasn't a terrorist. We didn't, we didn't come to him as part of Al-Qaeda. That's not what this was about. And, um, 
then it be, it gets even more interesting because what happens is the real connection between Majid Khan and Al Qaeda's planning and plotting also gets questioned in court. And so the result is that the judge who had overseen the conviction, uh, the trial and conviction of Uzair, begins to have doubts when he sees what's claimed in the new evidence. And he decides to review the information and to really question whether Uzair Paracha might potentially be innocent or not. And Judge Stein concludes that the new evidence undermined the basis of Uzair's conviction upon his review of the information. First, the Guantanamo detainees that I mentioned had said that Uzair was absolutely not guilty. In Khan's words, Uzair Paracha is innocent. And Uzair said he had never told Paracha that he was Al-Qaeda. Importantly, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, KSM, who confessed to many, many, many terrorist plots, associations, etc., did not mention the Parachas, and neither had al-Baluchi. And so looking at this evidence, Judge Stein decided that, in his words, Uzair would be able to argue on retrial not only that he never knowingly aided the terrorist group, but that he never aided al-Qaeda at all. And he overturned the conviction thinking that if this had been produced and saying that if this had been produced at trial, it have resulted in an acquittal. And Stein says this may have been a serious miscarriage of justice and he orders a new trial. What's interesting now is that no such trial took place. The trial date began to approach in late 2019 and prosecutors moved to dismiss. They said they wanted to dismiss it because of the time it would take to review the 14,000 classified documents that were necessary in order to do this case the right way and to to retry the case. And as a result, Uzair was um, free to go home, which he did. Um, I think I think we need to reflect on this for a bit. You know, what is the timing of in 2020 the federal government deciding, saying it would be a race, waste of resources to retry Paracha, what was really going on? I mean if I think what was really going on was that they didn't think they were going to find in those 14,000 documents what they needed to make the link to Al-Qaeda and the association with uh, terrorist charges that he'd been charged with. And I think that's kind of interesting because it sheds a light on so much of how difficult the terrorism trials have been, not just at Guantanamo, but in federal court. There have been over 600 terrorism trials related to international jihadist uh, terrorism trials since 9-11. And many of them have presented factual evidence about plots and plans for terrorism, and many of them have not. And so I think it, and I've attended many of those trials and sort of watched these attempts to what it means to be associated with Al-Qaeda, how, what kind of evidence would make it look as if somebody actually was plotting a terrorist attack. And a lot of these, though some of these cases have been from start to finish produced evidence that's been very compelling. Others have been very much taken place within the context of 9-11 happened and we need to address this in a proactive, preventive way. 
so I, I just thought this was an interesting case because it, I wondered if you opened up other cases, what else you would find in the new context of 2020 and not 2005, 2008, et cetera. So that was just one of the takeaways that, that I think is one of the things to, to think about. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the most interesting parts of the story to me is this last episode that you described where, you know, the, the link between Uzair and Al-Qaeda evaporates. And so then the father's case also starts to unravel for prosecutors. And and this, uh, as you, I think, explicitly say, kind of complicates this idea, as I mentioned earlier, of parallel systems of justice. So I'm curious, you know, how this case changed your thinking about the relationship between uh, the federal courts and the military commissions. You know, it was it always a myth that these were parallel systems? Was, you know, the intention behind the military commissions always doomed to fall short. How did this change your thinking of of that relationship? We've always known that there's some kind of relationship between the accusations of, of some of the federal court cases here and the ones at Guantanamo. The Department of Justice has had a hand both in uh, Guantanamo litigation and helping think about it and in the federal court system. So it, I wouldn't know if it's so much changing my mind as just realizing what a waste of time, effort, money, and resources um, the Guantanamo Military Commission system has been. Because one of the things I think that's most interesting about this case is that from start to finish, they were interested in the Guantanamo detainee. They were interested in the father. They were interested in Saifala. And Uzair was sort of like, almost an afterthought and a way, as we've seen, of getting at the father. So that is interesting because in a way, it's a metaphor for the larger issue of Guantanamo military commissions, which is all of these years since 9-11, we still have not been able to try the individuals who are accused of conspiring to bring about the attacks of September 11th, 2001. And in lieu of that, what we've done is gone for things that are somehow more easy to prosecute and more easy to get convictions on, even in the case that I just left out, where eventually the conviction was thrown out. So this is what it tells you is that in a way, I think a lot of these things are substitutes for the real issue, which is, can we use our courts to try those who are accused of bringing about uh, the attacks of 9-11? And at this point, it's really hard to say, you know, that that will ever happen. We're now talking about plea deals with these uh, 9-11 individuals, um, 9-11 uh, co-defendants. I, I think that's going to happen. But I think what it says to me about both the military commissions and the, the federal courts is that all along, the idea had to have been Let's get the, the masterminds, the people in charge, the people closest to bin Laden, the people who actually brought this about because of all the things a trial can do, which is provide healing for the victims of 9-11, the families of those um, who perished, and even the larger uh, public that was affected by uh, 9-11. And it didn't happen. And so these are kind of, you know, this is in a way a kind of substitute to pick a word. Um, and I think these cases really made you focus on on that and and how just incredibly inept we've been at being able to try the most important case of all. Now, today at the time of recording, Saifullah and Uzair Paracha are both back home in 
Pakistan. In fact, you begin your article in Lawfare describing a photo on Carol Rosenberg's Twitter of of Saifola, you know, beaming at a McDonald's in Karachi. And then, you know, in j- just the past few days, as you mentioned, Majid Khan has been released and is now settling into uh, Belize, which will be his new home. So, you know, as as some of these prisoners and, you know, as you also mentioned, Saifola at the time uh, when he was at Guantanamo was he was the oldest prisoner they had. So as we see some of these former detainees, you know, released, moving on to new chapters of their lives, uh, and yet there are still prisoners at Guantanamo, how would you describe this current moment for Guantanamo Bay? And, you know, where do you see maybe the the prison going in the next few years uh, in terms of prospects of full closure <laughs> and maybe even uh, potential, you know, reparation of, of injustice? Yeah, I do think the Biden administration is serious about wanting to close it. I wish they were moving at a faster pace. They've cleared 20 for release. There are 34 left there, including those in the military commissions. Um, With plea deals on the table, I do think closure um, is possible. But what that actually means in terms of the lives of these individuals um, remains a question. As you know, with the release of Majid Khan, the United States has moved him to uh, Belize, which is an English-speaking country, um, where his wife and uh, daughter can join him and has um, agreed to participate to, you know, helping him rebuild his life there um, in terms of resources and, and finances as well. It's hard to get people out of Guantanamo still to this day, but it's happening. I think much of the behind the scenes negotiations are exactly that behind the scenes, part of the quiet diplomacy that the Biden administration um, embraces. But I do think this can happen in terms of reparations. I think first let's get the individuals out and then talk about uh, reparations. I think that can happen in a number of cases. I also think it's not just reparations. It's taking care of these individuals whose health, particularly those who were held at CIA black sites, um, whose health uh, has so deteriorated and who are who are really sick and who need physical attention and medical rehabilitation, um, as well as psychological help. And I think that has to be part of any package that has to do with what happens with these individuals when they when and if plea deals are, are happened. As far as the rest, the sooner the better. I know it, it is very difficult to make arrangements where the the safety of the individual being released as well as the future safety of the United States is assured uh, in any kind of deal where a third country agrees to take an individual that the United States has decided they will take under no circumstances. But it can happen. Um, it happened, you know, at the end of the Obama administration, he really stepped up the pace under um, his ambassador, a special envoy in charge of the releases of the detainees. And this can happen now with his new appointment of Tina Kedno, in, who is in charge of making these uh, releases happen. That will leave a few individuals who have not been cleared for release among the forever prisoners. And uh, again, they can release them under certain conditions, giving them certain care, certain attention, certain circumstances. Guantanamo should have been closed a long time ago. And the fact that it's lasted this long, forgetting even the amount of, of money, which is thirteen more than $13 million per prisoner per year, uh, at last count, a thousand guards and other personnel attentive to these 34 uh, detainees, not to mention as I say, the more important point, which is the injustice of keeping people in indefinite detention without a trial, 
is really a moment the United States needs to, to put behind itself. And I think this case of Saifullah and Uzair Paracha demonstrates the missteps that Guantanamo uh, evidenced from the very beginning and some of the missteps of the federal court system as well. Guantanamo has, has given us less clarity, not more clarity. It's given us less trust in our courts, not more trust in our courts. It's time to bring it to an end. I do think that some of the recent releases, um, Majid Khan being the most recent, have really made it clear that the federal government, the Biden administration, uh, is willing to entertain the release of individuals in a ma- much broader way uh, than it has in the past. And I think that this reflects not just the moving on from the war on terror um, in the way we understood it before, but moving on from the 9-11 moment of the war on terror, but also returning to a trust in ourselves to be able to handle things in a way that is lawful, constitutional, that respects human rights. So I'm looking forward to to that moment of closure coming soon. A, a moment of closure seems like a, a good place to end. So uh, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks for doing this, Tyler. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.